Why do we we want to be productive? We want to be efficient with our labor. We want to get done what, what we are, are set about to do. And money is the reward for that. But if our money is not sound, if our money is, is leaking and is not storing value well, then we ever have to be more and more efficient, more and more productive to achieve the same output. So we believe that when you go to scripture and you see the mind of God, you come out with a conviction that allows you to look optimistically and creatively at this world and say, what has he given me today that allows me to better love him and love my neighbor? And that right now is Bitcoin. Uh, welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. This is the podcast that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. And I am your host, Reagan Rose. Well, today I am so excited. I have the privilege of being joined here by Simon, David, and Will from the Bitcoin and the Bible podcast, which is an incredible podcast. I will have links to the show in the show notes, but it is about, just as the name suggests, about Bitcoin and the Bible, making a moral case for Bitcoin and why Christians should embrace uh, Bitcoin. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Reagan. It's great to be here tonight, and we're excited to finally be able to join you. Thank you for having us, Reagan. Indeed. Well, I just start by saying we were talking a little bit before we began. Uh, I am just so thankful for what you guys are doing. There, there are a lot of great resources on Bitcoin out there, and there are some things being written by written by Christians. Um, but I just love the the combination of sound doctrine with sound money and. You know, as you guys know, in the world of, of cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin too, you can have a little bit of wild-eyed craziness to it. And so hearing from people who are grounded in the truth, grounded in words in God's word about this is just such a powerful thing. So I just wanted to start by thanking you guys for what you're doing. We appreciate the encouragement. So listeners to this episode might be wondering, why are we talking about Bitcoin? I, this is a podcast on personal productivity. And so I kind of wanted to laboriously make a little connection here because you guys made this connection very clear. The connection between money and productivity, how we keep our work in money. I wonder if you guys could maybe elaborate on that a little bit. How, why is it important that we have sound money and how does that connect to how we store our labor? Yeah, happy to speak to that, Reagan. This is Simon here, and uh, we're really thankful for uh, the opportunity to connect God's Word to Bitcoin. Uh, and we, we do believe that Bitcoin is sound money and that God loves sound money. But I think when you peel back one layer and say, why does God love sound money? It's because God is a God who loves work, right? He works. He created us to work and to, to display His image. And so when you work, you, you need a way to store the energy and the time that you put into your work. So when you th when I think about productivity, I think about the reality that God loves it when workers are efficient, when they're skilled. We see examples of that all the way through the Bible. I, I love the example of Bezalel in the Old Testament, who was this extraordinarily skilled worker and was given the opportunity to help build the tabernacle and the temple and so forth and all of the things that he did. And I love the reality that when God allows believers to take their work and store it in money, when that money works well, it stores their effort and their time into the future and allows them to share it effectively with others across space and time. So whether that's 
being able to give generously, whether that's being able to store your your wealth and transfer it and, and, and buy something that's of utility to you right now, or give it to the next generation in a way that preserves its value, that's the essence of money from its from a first principles perspective. Yeah, Simon, the just thinking about that statement, the earlier statement, kind of the, the foundational statement about work, right? God worked, he worked six days in creation, and then he rested. And William, you've made the point that he obviously could have uh, spoken the entire creation into existence immediately, but he chose to do it over a period of six days to, to, to form and to fill it and setting a pattern for us to follow in his likeness. And my mind goes to the Proverbs. I go to Proverbs 6, where the sluggard is told to go to the ant and observe what you can learn, that, that God has baked productivity into the creation. Even a, even a soulless bug knows that you need to work, you need to work well, and there's lessons everywhere you look. So, yeah, work is, is fundamental to what it be, means to be human, to be made in the image of God. And I think just to give a, the quick counterexample, what, what happens if you don't have good money? So productivity, why do we, we want to be productive? We want to be efficient with our labor. We want to get done what, what we are, are set about to do. And money is the reward for that. But if our money is not sound, if our money is, is leaking and is not storing value well, then we ever have to be more and more efficient, more and more productive to achieve the same output which is circumventing the entire uh, desire to be productive in the first place. We, we stop being productive when we have to do more work more efficiently to get the same outputs that we did last year. Or we cheat and we try to avoid work altogether and just print wealth into existence. You know, I think that's, that's one of the things that really caught me listening to you guys is youth. I think we've been conditioned to think that well, I mean, if I'm going to preserve wealth, then I have to put that money out at risk somewhere. I have to invest it. Like it's it's this de facto thing that, of course, mo- there's inflation, and my money's always going to be losing value, and it's just something all of us kind of expect. And this is fundamentally one of the things that had to be just over and over again knocked into my head that that that's not a fundamental thing that has to be true of money. That a deflationary currency can exist. And indeed does exist in Bitcoin. An inflationary money is a sign of a debased culture in which trying to get something for nothing lies at the foundations of it. I remember in high school when I took the basic economics class and our economics professor explained that we targeted 2% inflation per year in order to stimulate spending in the economy because there's a fear that the efficiency gains and the deflationary effects of technology would cause people to hoard their money, they wouldn't spend it if they knew that that computer would reduce in price. So we want to steer prices upwards so that people will want to spend their money today. And I just remember thinking at the time, that's that's evil. Right? We're, we're manipulating an entire society and trying to control it from top down to control their behavior by by stealing from them. And I think most most people who live in the business world understand this well, right? Every chart you look at needs to go up and to the right. There's the expectation of not just growth, but double-digit growth. And when you understand why, it's because it's not just that you're expecting that people are going to become more efficient and that they're going to unlock future resources. It's because they're trying to keep up and, and exceed the inflation rate, which is stealing the bottom from them, increasing the denominator faster than they can put the numerator up. And 
just like Will said, that steals productivity from you. You end up having to work longer hours, work weekends, work more uh, job efficiently than a more work equivalent of two people's jobs to do one person's job just to keep the company afloat and to keep the efficiency metrics there. And, and that steals life from you. It steals from your ability to worship God, to love your family, to, to serve your church, everything that we want to be able to do with the time that we have. And so I, we look back at Bitcoin and say it's, it's God's way of providentially providing savings technology for the church so that we can store the work of our labor efficiently, and then we can use the time that he's given us to glorify him. Hmm. Yeah, I think part of the, you know, people talk about going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, and it seems that part of the rabbit hole for a lot of people, and I know it was for me, was learning how the U.S. United States monetary system actually works and just being, it's just jaw dropping. And it, it seems like a lot of people were in the same boat as me, just did not realize. I mean, currently with printing so many, so much money, people, it's in the news a lot and people recognize something's messed up here, but it, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. What, what is it that makes Bitcoin superior to the U.S. monetary system, or, or how is the, the you call fiat monetary system in the United States? What's what's fundamentally wrong with it? Why is it that it that it incentivizes basically perverse um, behavior? So, money has to reflect value, right? So, in order to reflect value, it has to be scarce. If money is too abundant, if if you can just always get more without doing work then it is incapable of representing the work that it is intended to represent. So a, a money's value will always trend towards its production cost. So historically, gold is a very good money because its production cost is very high. It's scarce. It's hard to dig out of the ground. It's hard to refine. The U.S. dollar was backed by gold until it wasn't. And now for the last 50 years, we've been completely untethered from any gold standard. What does that mean? It means that the production cost of the U.S. dollar is zero. That's why the value of the dollar is trending towards zero and it's trending ever faster because the U.S. government is printing trillions of dollars. And so what's happening is your personal wealth is the numerator. The amount of dollars you have is the numerator in the fraction. The denominator is the total number of dollars in existence. So when the U.S. government can produce more money, your value falls. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is hard capped to 21 million units. There will never be 21 million units or, or more. And so you have a money that is perfectly scarce. We know exactly how much there is. Gold, obviously God has created a fixed supply of gold in the universe, but we don't know how much it is. And we don't even know when we're going to find a massive vein of it. So there's, there's unpredictability there. And gold tends to inflate at about 2% per year. Bitcoin is currently matching that inflation rate as, as Bitcoin is issued every 10 minutes, but it is trending downwards. Every four years, the new supply is cut in half and it is, it is asymptotically trending towards zero. So you have a money where I know, okay, if I store my value in Bitcoin, no one can come along and debase me by just making more Bitcoin. They can't retroactively change the terms of the contract. When I work for dollars, it's under the presumption that these dollars are, are going to provide a certain amount of purchasing power. If someone comes along and prints, say, $5 trillion more trillion, the purchasing power of those dollars is debased, and they've retroactively stolen my time. I worked for less than I, than I was promised. With Bitcoin, I know that out of, out of a total proportion of the whole, no one can come and steal that from me. 
Now, with with gold, a lot of times the argue argument against Bitcoin, people say, well, it's just you know magic internet money, like it's it's not real, you know, intrinsic value. With gold, I I can do something with that. If if worse comes to worse, I can make a ring out of it or something. Maybe could you speak to that because that comes up again and again when I talk to people about this, the the whole idea of intrinsic value in a money. I think people, they cling to intrinsic value because it's comfortable and it's familiar, but it's flawed. Gold didn't become money because it's intrinsically valuable, right? If, if gold was valuable because of its utility cost, then it would be far less than it is now. Only a couple trillion dollars worth of, of gold is, is used as a monetary store value. The rest is, is its jewelry cost, but, or it's industrial usage. But when we look at, at money being physical is a liability more than it is an asset. So gold, yes, it's physical. You can hold it. That, that seems great. That's comforting at first, but that also means that it's centralized. It's hard to secure physically. It's hard to, to move it at great distances. So the innovation of Bitcoin is to say, okay, let's have a money that is as secure in its supply issuance as gold, if not better. And then let's also combine it with something that could be transported between any two persons on any, in any portion of the globe without a third party intermediary that, that you have to trust. That's never before been possible, right? So we have a money, any other currency, any other Commodity money, any other fiat money, it always requires a trusted middleman to move money from one person to another. Bitcoin fundamentally solves this problem. And so it enables us to move money to anyone, anywhere, anytime without trusting anyone. And no one can cut us off from that network. So its intangibility is one of its greatest assets. It also makes it seizure resistant. Somebody can come to your house, they can shoot you and they can take your gold. If someone comes to your house and they shoot you, your Bitcoin is just lost to the network. It's, it's inaccessible, but it, they can't take it from you. It's the first property that can't be seized by force. Yeah, Reagan, I'll add to that. <clears throat> I think for your audience in particular, it's good for them to think personally. And when I came to Bitcoin last year, this time around last year, when Will introduced me to it, this was one of my hangups. This is one of those concerns that I didn't understand and that I couldn't express. And I wanted to hold something tangible. I wanted to see the value of what I had and think about it in that light. And I didn't see the value or the utility of Bitcoin. There were two things that ultimately changed that for me. One of which was to appreciate the, the utility concept, the concept of saying that this is a, a money that actually facilitates transactions in a way that decreases cost by decreasing the friction that exists within the monetary system, right? It decreases the transaction costs. It decreases the central counterparty risk that goes between transactions and frees up the movement of money in a way that no other money has ever had the capacity to do. So it allows me to embrace the future and say, God didn't intend for us to stay stuck in one particular generation's technology, right? God's mind is infinite. It has the capacity for us to, to go into it, to see the depths of it, the mathematics, the truth, and this is just continuing the flow of technology that he started 6,000 years ago. The second thing that I didn't appreciate was how money doesn't have to be a good, right? It can be a transaction ledger. And we go into this in our third episode. Will just did a brilliant job of writing a, a little story called Bitcoin is Money, where we, 
we, we walk through what it would look like for a people lost on a, on a desert island to adopt a transaction ledger, a simple transaction ledger as a means of storing their value and then transferring it one to another in a basic economic system. And it really helped me, it helped my family embrace the concept that you don't need to explain something with cryptography and computer science to be able to understand how money can be basically just a transaction ledger. And in, in this case, a global transaction ledger that is protected and secured and enabled so that people can use it for the future. Early on in the podcast, it was one of the early episodes, you talked about something that kind of stopped me uh, and I had to listen closer. And you were talking about the morality of Bitcoin. And you said one of you said something about, you know, if you recognize that you're participating in an immoral monetary system, it's incumbent upon you to seek to distance yourself from it. And uh, and you use this phrase moral money a lot in there. And so maybe we could hone in on that. Why would you, why do you claim that Bitcoin is a more moral money? How can money be moral at all? I guess is the big question. Sure. Well, in Proverbs 11 and verse one, it says a false balance is an abomination to the Lord that a just weight is his delight. So, that's strong terminology to be an abomination. I mean, if you trace down that word, obviously you find that it, it's, it's not widely applied. So, so that kind of a statement that um, a false balance, and it's not just there, it's repeated in numerous places, uh, speaks of a, of a commercial system. That's where the balance is used, right? So it's saying God has, takes great interest in commerce, which actually is pretty logical if you think about it, since God established work right? And money is a means to store one's labor for, for the future, um, then obviously God would have great interest in these things. And, and so for, for him to say it's an abomination says to us that we need to think pretty seriously about this and, um, and figure out, okay, are, are, are we involved in something that's an abomination in God's eyes? And if we are, what do we do about all of that? And um, so that kind of led us down the path to really, you know, begin to explore this. And, and so why do we believe Bitcoin is um, best represents the mind of God in these things? Well, it's because of the properties of Bitcoin, that, that one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, that, that a third party can't create it and, and debase your holdings and thus steal your life energy that you've stored in, in the money. And that it's, that it's widely available to everybody, that there's no there's nobody that's closer to the money printer than somebody else. So it's the poor and the rich alike have an equal opportunity to, to store their, their um, labor in Bitcoin. Yeah, I think if you add your thoughts to that, we, we, we talked about before, inflation is theft. When you inflate the monetary supply, you are stealing predominantly from those who cannot continue earning money in the current system. Those who have ceased earning and are now relying upon their savings, you're stealing from them because as your per their purchasing power is decreasing without the ability for them to access the new money that's coming into the system. And further, you're stealing from future generations, especially when you run a deficit. Right? You're basically borrowing from the next generation and saying they're going to pay it back. And, and that's theft. And so as we look closer and closer at our current system, and how fractional reserve lending has evolved, and how central banks have uh, 
been unable to restrain themselves from basically propagating forward the lowering of interest rates, which also steals from the savers and and continues to inflate the monetary technology or monetary supply. We see that as, as a combination of things that point us to the reality that God is not pleased by that current system. The more we participate in that current system and the more we understand it and then continue to participate in it and even maybe continue to do very well in our participation, the the knowledge that we are doing so on the backs of others who cannot participate in that system because they either don't own capital, they don't own real estate, they can't borrow, they can't access banking, they can't get close to the money printer. That's where we are convicted morally that we don't want to perpetuate that. We want to we want to opt out, and God providentially has provided something in the last twelve years that gives us the ability to opt out better than ever before. And we've talked about that. If you take us back fifteen years, or fifty years, or a hundred years, we would have been forced to opt out by going to precious metals as the most scarce asset that best reflected the moral character of our great God. But in the current world, we have we have a better option, and we're choosing to opt out. Not in the sense that we don't work jobs. We don't pay our bills in, in Bitcoin, right? We have, we're forced to pay our bills in dollars. We, we continue to earn in dollars. We continue to have dollars in our economy. So we pay our taxes in dollars. And I mean, there's, right. yeah, I mean, the, the idea that you can completely separate yourself from the present world system, again, as a Christian, you already know that, right? I mean, we're to be uh, uh, in the world, but not of the world. And so we don't have the ability to completely separate ourselves, but we um, we do have, through Bitcoin, the, the ability to both identify what's wrong and propose a solution. And I think that's part of our po- podcast is is to try to educate people uh, so that there could be a transformation, a worldwide transformation to honest money that does reflect the heart of God. And then for us, we have made personal financial decisions that have cost us profit, as it were, by refusing to take advantage, for example, of the of some of these altcoins, which are just pump and dump scams that, that further um, take advantage of those that are, you know, less fortunate in terms of knowledge or financial acumen or, you know, any of those kinds of things. Yeah, I think that'd be a good point to to ask, too about the difference between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, because it's not, it's not synonymous. When people talk about cryptocurrency, there are lots of them and there are new ones by the hour, it seems. What makes Bitcoin different? Because would you describe yourself as Bitcoin maximalists? Yes. Yes, very much so. Toxic even. You're not into crypto, you're into Bitcoin. Why is that? Crypto is uh, is a catch-all bucket for the scum that has clung on to Bitcoin's coattails. So every other crypto is is fundamentally broken and flawed in a fundamental way. Bitcoin is is decentralized, it's permissionless, it is not controlled by any central party. Altcoins are the complete opposite. They're broken on a technological level for a variety of reasons that if your listeners are interested, I, I go on a few other rants in our podcast about. But the the key thing to, to understand is that I will say 99.99% of all altcoins have governance boards, they have foundations, they have a, they have a founder, they have marketing funds, they prey upon 
people's fear of missing out on Bitcoin's early gains. And they prey on that greed and say, look, we're going to, you know, we're going to moonshot just like Bitcoin did in its first few years, jump on board. We've got a big marketing budget. And what they are doing is they are just sucking you in to take your capital so that they can turn around and buy Bitcoin, right? Altcoins are a, a proxy way for engineers to steal Bitcoin from suckers. That is fundamentally So no what they real are. opinion on that? I, I don't really feel strongly <laughs> about it. I think people should you know, kind of do their own research. <laughs> well, and there, right. are, there are a few out there that, you know, claim the same kind of sound money principles as Bitcoin. But, you know, William, as you've said more than once, uh, you can't have your money on two networks. So if, if you move from the Bitcoin network onto some, you know, copycat network, then, then you've, you know, you're throwing in with that. And, and why would you abandon the preeminent, uh, you know, worldwide network for some possibility of a startup? There's, there's really not, no upside there and, and uh, only downside. We got one shot to take down Goliath. That's Bitcoin. And maybe the last thing to add to that, Reagan, is we definitely differentiate trading from savings. We don't, we're not making the argument that you can't make money trading altcoins and that no altcoin is ever going to have a better short-term or long-term growth curve in terms of its, uh, its uh, realized gain uh, compared to Bitcoin. What we're saying is, is that the wisdom principle here is that you choose to save in real money. And unless an altcoin is going to be a better money than Bitcoin, then there's no reason to, to not save in the better money. And for the reasons that Will has pointed out, we also discourage Christians from kind of dabbling in altcoins simply because we do recognize that often what you're doing is you're profiting on the backs of some fool out there who doesn't understand. And we want to, we want to help Christians live in a consistent worldview that, that allows them to say, when I'm when I'm holding Bitcoin, I'm, I'm honoring God in how I do that. And I'm not basically making money on the foolishness of other people. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things you helped clarify for me is there's this, you're, when you're trying to understand Bitcoin, you're trying to understand it by analogy. And sometimes people say, well, it's like stocks or it's like this, or it's like or gold, or it's like this. And when I think about what, what Bitcoin, what it replaces, it's, a place to put money to say it's basically a savings account that actually grows over time, which profound concept. Is that, is that accurate? Is that, is that a way, is that the right way to think about it that you buy and you hold it and it's just, you, it's there to preserve you. You're not, you're not trying to, um, you're not trying to, to buy the dip and sell the high and, and make money off trading. You're basically saying, just put your money there and sit on it. Buying the dip and selling the high is like trying to, to buy and sell seats on the Titanic's lifeboats, right? The system is collapsing all around us. Do you really want to be trying to, to hop on and off the lifeboat to make a couple extra bucks? I don't. I don't want to take on that kind of risk. So yeah, Bitcoin currently primarily serves as a store of value, which is the adoption curve of all monies. If money is not a store of value, then it doesn't really do well as a medium of exchange. So Bitcoin has, has been growing as a store of value. It's done phenomenally as a store of value over the last decade. We are beginning to see the medium of exchange aspects of Bitcoin grow. It's now legal tender in El Salvador. Due to advancements such as the Lightning Network, you can pay for your coffee instantly. 
And so I expect that, yeah, we will see the store value, the medium of exchange, both continue to grow now. Store value has the, the early lead. Medium of exchange is going to continue to grow. And then at that point, once it is the medium of exchange it, and it's already your store value, then it becomes your unit of account and it fulfills all three functions of, of money. I think it's also critical to, to think about this and realize that Bitcoin has not stayed the same. Even when Satoshi wrote the, the white paper 12, 13 years ago yesterday, right? He saw Reformation it Reformation day. Interesting <laughs> yeah. time to release it, right? Yes. That's right. Uh, he saw it as a medium of exchange. And, and so many of the early criticisms of Bitcoin were levied against it as on the basis that it, it couldn't rise to meet the standards of being a global medium of exchange. It couldn't be fast enough. There couldn't be enough transaction capacity. It, and there were a lot of aspects of that that were true that were subsequently to be overcome by the development of the second layers of, de- of technology and where we see it now starting to function in that medium of exchange uh, uh, role that we see it having in the future, we definitely embrace the reality that it can be a medium of exchange when we need it to be. But I think in the past couple of years, you've started to see the argument for it uh, serving more as a stable store of value, which you put your, your value in and kind of mirroring the function of how both gold and bonds, U.S. Treasury bonds have been. It's kind of the base layer of the financial system. And so that's the beauty of it, right? It can be both. It can be both the store of value and the medium exchange. And when you first asked that question, I was thinking about how I was just listening today to a podcast where uh, Stefan Levera was interviewing uh, Tomer Strollite, who wrote an essay that Bitcoin is like unlike anything you've ever seen before. It's really something that's hard to make an analogy for be- because it is unlike something that you any, anything that you've ever seen. It doesn't have a creator that you can see. It doesn't have a CEO who governs it today. It's it's not the same as anything. So it does require us as Christians to, to do a little bit more research to get past what the mainstream media puts out there as to what is Bitcoin and what are its strengths and what are its weaknesses and what is it going to be in the future. Being the old man of the group here, I guess I'm, I'm motivated by, uh, by the generational aspect of, of Bitcoin, right? So you work your entire life and you live below your means with a, with a godly desire, right? Because the Proverbs say, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So with a godly desire to, to pass through to a third generation, the, the fruit or a portion of the fruit of one's labor. And, and so how can I do that in a, in a money that's, you know, it's like being a bathtub with the, with the plug pulled, right? It's just not possible. And so other proxies begin to take its place. So real estate, for example, has traditionally been used as a way to try to, to store and move wealth intergenerationally. But the massive run-ups in real estate have everything to do with 35 years of falling interest rates and the, and the inflation factor that, that continues to debase the dollar, right? How can, how can a house that's 100 years old be worth, you know, 30 times what it was when it was first built? It's the same, same wood, same nails, and so forth. So that's a, that's a function of, of interest rate policies and, and inflation factors and, and things like that. So, so Bitcoin now represents the opportunity to sort of hermetically seal my labor and then move it forward to my, to my grandchildren. With no maintenance cost. With no maintenance cost. Zero maintenance cost, right? So, and I was a gold guy. And I still have a little bit of the yellow rocks. Um, 
but the problem with gold is, is the is the security and storage costs. Yeah, you know it's it's real. And with property, it's taxed. It, and property is taxed in, in perpetuity. Oh, right. And as the price continues to rise in your property because of inflation factors and so forth, your property taxes rise with it. So, you know, they're kind of getting you in both directions, right? They're continuing to tax you on a higher basis that's created through a depreciated money. I want to return to the the moral question because it... I think if, if people are listening to this and they've, they don't know much about Bitcoin except for what they've seen on the news. That's um, a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of things. That's a mistake. Um, but they, I mean, to call Bitcoin a moral money is like literally the opposite of what they're hearing that Bitcoin is what hackers use. Bitcoin is a, is a, a get rich quick scheme. It's, you know, you, you, you throw all your money at this thing and you, you hope you pull the lever and you're going to get rich out of it. And it all, is just bad, negative, negative, negative. So I wonder if maybe you guys could dispel some of the, the common myths about that, that Bitcoin is just for people, drug dealers and, and Silk Road type stuff like that. Sure. I would just start with a general comment. Then, William, you jump in. My general comment is the people that are telling you these things are the same people who have been lying to you for the last 18 months. And I won't, you know, I don't need to express <laughs> all of those lies. I think your audience probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. I think Bitcoin started out and it, it was and, and still is the money of, of drug dealers and, and criminals because drug dealers and criminals have a fundamental problem, which is their activities are frowned upon by the state. And so for them to move to a money that can't be censored or controlled is a no-brainer. Most criminal activity is actually done using cash, U.S. dollar cash. Why? because it's sensor resistant. Once, once you have it, it's peer-to-peer transfer and nobody can stop it. It's a, it's a bearer instrument. It's a bearer instrument. Once I give it to you, it's a, it's a final transaction. There's no revocability, right? You can't change your mind a week later and file a fraud report with your credit card that you gave somebody cash, right? It's done. So Bitcoin being a bearer asset that is, I'm able to transport from one place to another makes it the perfect use case for online drug dealers. But we should look at that and say, okay, they recognized a problem that they needed to solve. And while we may not personally agree with what the, you know, what they were doing and why they needed to solve that problem, that has ramifications for, say, hypothetically, uh, a church in a country where the government frowns upon Christianity, right? Or where the government frowns upon individual believers having the ability to do with their money and donate to missionaries or store it for their for future generations, right? So the very things that they are painting it as evil for, it's because it solves a unique problem and, and those people recognize it. And people who are on the outside of the system are the people who are, are most likely to adopt something new because they're already backs against the wall. And I think the other criticism that you mentioned there is, is a particularly pertinent one time-wise because... If you look at the TGC, the Gospel Coalition article that was published last week by Greg Phelan, it basically made the argument that, that Bitcoin is basically like going to Las Vegas and throwing your money on a gambling table, expecting to, to get really, really, really rich or lose it all. And I, I think what that article misses in a big picture perspective is the reality that um, those who are choosing to invest and save in a technology that protects them 
are, are, are actually taking control of their money in a way that is wise and prudent and discretionary. They're really not out there just kind of throwing it against the wall, hoping that it fixes some problem. And, 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 that, and that article really ignores the reality that this is not new. This is 12 years in existence. And you can look around and see practical, real-world examples of how Bitcoin is, is enabling people to love their neighbor well by doing legitimate business well. And I, I love the El Salvador examples for so many reasons, but I love the fact that you can just literally point out the fact that 70% of El Salvador's population is an unbanked population and, and would not have the access to the system to be able to even save in a, in a traditional banking structure. So they're left without an option and they're, they're further left without an option because they're, they're tied to the U.S. dollar, which is being inflated away without any say or control over them. So those in the U.S. who make the argument that we should, in the U.S., be kind of putting our money into Bitcoin because we're just gambling it away are ignoring the reality that Bitcoin is helping real people across the real world deal with real problems that they have no other solutions for. And it's also further ignoring the reality that, as Will pointed out, you may need those solutions sooner well, rather than later. We saw in the past year pastors in, in Canada, uh, uh, a country that is supp supposed to be a, a constitutional democracy, put in jail. Yeah. Right? So who, uh, you know, roll the clock back 24 months and who in their right mind would have, would have postulated such a thing? We right. would have said, that's impossible. Oh, yeah, maybe in China they would do that. They don't do that in Canada. So can we say that anymore? Can we, right. can we with confidence say that there won't be a time here in the U.S. in all of our lifetimes when those that are in authority start putting Christian pastors in the United States in jail? Yeah. Yeah, you know, we talk about cancel culture and things like that, and there are people who've been canceled financially, you know, whatever your feelings about um, Andrew Torba and, and Gab and that social network. I remember reading about how he got, he basically couldn't bank with anybody. All the banks blacklisted him. And I've heard of other people that payment processors like Stripe and PayPal, they completely lose their livelihood because of these third parties. We know of a church and, in Canada that had their money frozen by PayPal. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but that can't happen with Bitcoin. There's nobody to freeze it. Nobody's got a button. Exactly. Now, there's there's other positive um, things for Christians as well, too. You know, we've talked about basically an antidote to cancel culture. We've talked about um, that it, it helps in places, if we get kind of out of a Westocentric mindset, realizing that this can be a real boon to lift people out of poverty, enable them to transact in a way they never have before. Um, you've talked about... Uh, in closed countries, perhaps um, helping pastors that are oppressed there. What about missions? What about what about things like that? Just the actual getting funds to people. Yeah, the Lightning Network, I think, is really going to unlock the potential for Bitcoin to change how we give generously to those whom we want to support today and in the future. But the simple reality that Bitcoin allows. Uh, through the Lightning Network for basically almost zero cost, instantaneous transactions to anyone in the world, anytime, without any central third party having the ability to stop that transaction, means that if a missionary or a missions agency were to embrace allowing their missions uh, 
missionaries to receive money in Bitcoin. Any Christian could choose to, to have an instantaneous way of granting that person as much Bitcoin as they wanted to send them through the Lightning Network at basically no cost. And again, that missionary on that other end would have a choice. And the choice would be whether to continue to hold it in Bitcoin or whether to convert it, convert it back to their local currency to be able to allow them to go buy bread and milk and pay for housing. And, and the, the beautiful part about that is that choice is being made today by missionaries and by non-missionaries across the world. And so I, I love how this speaks to the network effects that we're just talking about here. When, when someone in some comp- culture or some country figures out a way to make Bitcoin easier for them, that helps Christians because it's, it's not confined to that one particular individual and their belief system. When they make the Bitcoin network better, the Bitcoin network gets better for everyone. And we as believers can, can appreciate God's goodness in that regard and say, I now have the ability to bypass a government that would prevent me from giving money to a missionary in a closed country. I can go straight to that missionary. And as we talked about here, Bitcoin provides the ultimate portability as well. If I needed to leave a, a jurisdiction, whether that's a city, a state, or a country, and take my money with me, any other form of money would be subject to taxation as I was leaving that or country. Confiscation. Yeah, or, or confiscation. Or confiscation. Bitcoin is the first money that allows a believer to legally and ethically take their money with them because it's just 24 words in your head that can be easily written in the flyleaf of your Bible and taken across a border without having the risk of confiscation. I think it's, it's you know, back to the, the, the kind of the high-level thing of... Um, sending your labor. I think it was, I think it was you, Menno, in your podcast that were talking about um, Western Union and how, if you haven't had the experience of having to send large sums of money across the world, you don't recognize what a big problem, you can't Venmo, you know, $50,000. Maybe you can, but you, you can't send it to most other countries and not in the same way. And so these services, they, they build a network and they take their cut as, you know, that's what they do. That's what middlemen do. But it it's an interesting thing. You talked about the the people that um, you know maybe they'll move here from some other country and they're sending money back. They're they're at the Walmart Western Union place because they're sending their labor back to their family. Another they came here to make a living in America and send that labor back. But nearly half of it is getting taken in the process just through sending it through Western Union. I think that I mean I wasn't even aware of what a massive problem that Bitcoin solves with regard to that, the moving of labor instantaneously around the world. Absolutely. But the, the legacy financial system has, is so complex with so many parties involved um, that when each of them takes just a small sliver uh, you know, all, all the slivers, that's kind of like going to a church potluck. You know, you walk down the line, you put a little food on your plate from each each edition, you finish the line, and you got a mountain of food. <laughs> and and for most of the world, they deal in small transactions. I mean, these are poor people. So it doesn't seem like much to you. Yeah, I'm going to send $10,000 and, you know, they're going to take a 3% cut or something like that. You don't think that much about it. But but when you're talking about sending 50 bucks and then they're going to start taking, you know, 3% here and six on the other side, plus a minimum transaction fee of a dollar and a half and, you know, Pretty soon, they've gotten nicked for a lot of money, and so it, it is a uh, a big issue for them. 
I think maybe one other thing. I just trying to figure out where to shoehorn it in, so I'm going to do it here. <laughs> the, uh, well, I was just thinking, you know, we're talking about the ability of the Lightning Network and so forth to to move money that way for missionaries and and so forth. But I was, I'm, again, I'm old, so I'm kind of thinking, you know, transgenerationally. But I, but I think about Bible colleges and Bible schools that could be endowed with Bitcoin. Mm. And as as Bitcoin continues to grow and continues to eat the monetary premium out of the out of the 20th century stores of value, which have been gold and real estate and things like that, the bond market, it, it eats away that monetary premium. It's going to continue to accrete in value, which means that that um, you don't need to be a multi-billionaire here to endow a, 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 a small seminary or Bible college or so forth uh, with Bitcoin, that if they, if they steward it properly, it would continue to fund tuition for students for, uh, for generations. Uh, real quick, what is the Lightning Network for those who don't know? We've mentioned it a few times. Sure. So think of Bitcoin, the base layer, as roughly analogous to a wire transfer. It takes a little bit of time, so about an hour for full final settlement. And it doesn't matter how much or how little you're sending, the fees are the same. So you can move $100 currently for I don't know, 25, 30 cents or so. You can also move a billion dollars for 25 or 30 cents or so. But full final settlement is about an hour. The Lightning Network prioritizes speed. It's built on top of Bitcoin. It inherits the security properties of Bitcoin. It's settled on chain, uh, but it, it optimizes for speed of transactions at a, at a variable cost. So whereas the base chain, it's a flat rate for no matter how much you're sending. On the Lightning Network, it's prioritizing smaller transactions, day-to-day -day use cases, and you pay a, a percentage, but because it's a free market, open, competitive system, the rates are, are pushed down to, to well under a, a percent. So you can move, you know, I can send somebody 50 bucks for a penny or less in, in, in fees and have it be there on the other side of the world in a second with full finality of clearance. So it's a way to scale the Bitcoin base chain for the entire world. Hmm. Yes, Simon, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you about to say? Uh, I was just going to make the point as well that uh, when you were thinking about um, the, the Western Union analogy and how that affects the productivity and the efficiency, I think that when you, I run a small business, I pay the pr premium to basically say, if I want my customers to be able to buy something from me online, I have to go through uh, a, a limited set of vendors that are going to basically allow me to access the Visa network right, and pay that. 2.9% fee plus a base rate cost. And in a sense, we forced almost every small business that wants to do online sales to go through those same payment rails at that same cost and basically just extract that money out of your margins and give it up. And basically to say there's no other option, there's no other alternative. And, and Bitcoin is really freeing us up to say, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to go through the traditional payment system to be able to, to have access to that money. You, you should be able to free up some of those margins. And there was a, an article published a couple of months ago that basically made the argument that this could revolutionary, revolutionize low-margin businesses like grocery stores that operate on single-digit margins. And everybody pays using the legacy system, right? You swipe your card. Mm. The merchant's getting killed. Yeah. All those reward points come from the merchant. Right. Yeah, there's so many use cases and it just keeps it keeps growing. Um, 
One, this is maybe an odd question. I was talking to somebody about this recently, and they they were talking about basically the the morality, or is it right to divorce yourself from your from the monetary system you're under? And they were sort of arguing from from Romans thirteen and Jesus, you know, saying, "Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's." Essentially, arguing that that maybe the the monetary system, the the the, the power of minting and controlling money, is a um, an authority which God has delegated to the state, and it would be it would be rebellion on the part of the Christian to opt out of that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Lots of thoughts. <laughs> Good, yeah. I knew you would. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll start by answering by saying, keep listening to us. Uh, we're working right now on an episode that will speak directly to the relationship between the government and individual rights. So we're we're digging deep into God's word to to mine His truth out. And we don't have all the answers, but we certainly do believe that there are some some principles that God has put in place for Christians in any generation to relate to any government that they are submitting to an authority. So let's just start by acknowledging that we're Christians. We believe that that glorifying God comes by submitting to the authority structures that He has placed over us. And submission does not always come with a cheerful, oh boy, I get to submit to them today attitude, just as much as it, it's a it's an acknowledgement that God has placed that authority over me for my good and for His glory. But we also believe that God has given us the ability to see the limitations of human government and the reality that He instituted human government, and therefore He gets to define what its proper role is within society. Uh, so we go back to look at Genesis, and we read our Bibles left to right and say, before human governments created money— there was free trade and exchange. So governments don't own money. That's not the, the only purview of the government is to own and to regulate your money, right? Abraham exchanged uh, money, 400 shekels of silver for a field with Ephron the Hittite in Genesis 23. And that property right, that individual right for Ephron the Hittite to own that property and sell it to Abraham and for Abraham's family to own it for 200 years was not legislated or approved or necessarily authorized by any government. And there was no government coinage used in it. 400 right. shekels of silver is a statement about a weight of silver. It is not a statement about a coinage. And I guess the next step we, we look at is we say, well, where do you start to see human government forming from God's perspective? Well, it's Genesis 9, when post-flood, uh, God basically institutes a form of human government by prohibiting uh, taking an, a human's life and basically protecting the base, most basic property right, which is the right to life. And we believe that, that that is a response on God's behalf to the violence that existed pre-flood in Genesis 6, where the men were, men were free to follow the desires of their own heart, and that led them to an endless amount of seizing of each other's rights through violence and, and the, the like. And so when God refreshes the world and restarts it, he initiates a principle of human government, which is that government is tied to protecting the rights, uh, individual property rights of the citizens. So we do see that if you go forward into the New Testament, and obviously you leave behind the the times when God instituted his own government over the nation of Israel, and there's a great deal of principle that can be drawn from that government, but he also allows uh, governments to exist outside of that, but they exist to serve uh, the the interests of the citizens. Right? That's what Romans 13 tells us, is that that government is a servant to the citizens. And we believe that that means that government has a sphere of authority, which resides within the bigger sphere of God's authority. 
And when we see in Acts, the, the believers in Acts, they're choosing to, to disobey their government. They, they're recognizing the principle that that government had basically overstepped its bounds and had, had uh, compelled them to do something that was outside of its sphere of authority. So that's where we think it gets interesting is that we believe there's wisdom, wisdom that's required for any believer in any generation to look carefully at what government is requiring of them and to, to recognize that they may choose for a period of time to submit to an unjust law or unjust government because it's the wise thing to do at the time. And if you take the analogy and say, why didn't Jesus basically tell his disciples to rise up and overthrow the Roman government at that particular time? Well, it wasn't the wise thing to do, and chances are they would have gotten wiped off the face of the earth and all of the heritage that we inherited from them in the form of scripture and the church and everything that came out of those early years wouldn't be ours to enjoy today. So we don't profess to say that we agree with everything that our government tells us to do today. And, and therefore we don't necessarily believe that Christians are bound by submitting to the government in everything that the government says to do. But we also believe that there's a wisdom principle in choosing to pay income tax or capital gains tax for a period of time. And we're thankful that right now, today, Christians are not faced with the choice of saying, is Bitcoin illegal in the United hmm. States? There are obviously countries across the world where Bitcoin is illegal, and, and a believer in that country would have to make that decision today. But for us today, that's not the case. That could change. And if it changes, and when it changes, we will have to make decisions about how we handle that government oversight but for now, we believe that the principle is governments don't own money. God owns money. God allows believers to use money to facilitate free, independent economic trade decisions. And that's a biblical principle that, that's all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Private property is all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So believers are given the sovereignty to own their own property and exchange it for whatever the fair market value is, regardless of what the government thinks. And we believe Bitcoin falls into that sphere. Right. If, if government owns money and money is a store of labor, then government owns your labor, which means government owns you. And, and, and I, all my stuff. Too. And all your stuff, too. And I think we can yeah. make the argument, right, that, that slavery is immoral. And, and so why didn't Jesus just, you know, outlaw slavery? Well, I think there's a number of reasons that could be advocated, not the least of which is that if he were found to be promoting slave rebellion in the Roman Empire, that would have been the end of it all early on. But, but what happened? A, a biblical worldview, and as, as the gospel began to move out through the empire, um, caused people to evaluate slavery and say, you know, this is not what God would have for us. And so, <clears throat> you know, just kind of that fundamental syllogism that if, that if money is the store of your labor, if the government owns the money, the government owns your labor, you're nothing but a slave, is, is contrary to the will of God. And, and I think Bitcoin represents an opportunity for a, an enlightenment in, in, this, in this realm and to be able to roll the hands back in time to when money was understood to be a free market good, that, 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 um, that citizens or, or individuals, I guess you'd say, were able to agree to exchange their labor for. It's not a coincidence that throughout history, 
the state has had a very vested interest in the power of the purse, right? Because to, to your point, David, governments having the power of the purse means that they have the power over human time. So the ability to print money, whether today digitally, a few years ago through actually printing paper notes and you know a century ago by clipping the edges off of coins so they could mint more of them, it's slavery. And the fiat standard that we live under today where all countries globally live in a world where their money is unbacked by anything and untethered to work and is at the whim of the centralized overlords it's the largest experiment in mass slavery that humanity has ever experienced. There's obviously with, with any new technology, especially one that's going to concern my pocketbook and my, my time and my, my labor, there's a lot of fear, certainty, doubt about it. It's understandable. It's a scary thing, especially again, you know, if you watch the news, um, you can be, you can understand why Christians would kind of just wash their hands of it and say, Nah, not, I'm not going to worry about that. That's something weird. What what moral responsibility do you believe Christians have to to inform themselves on this so that their conscience can be informed? Prudent man sees danger and conceals himself. The fool continues on and is destroyed. So I think there is an obligation that comes, um, and it comes at a different time and place. I think for for each person, but to, to have to say, you know what, money is 50% of every transaction in life. And so I can't afford to just stick my fingers in my ears and, and just kind of go on with it. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe if you're 75 years old and you've done really well under the, under the fiat system. Yeah, I get it. You know, you're, technology is scary. Technology is scary. And there's no, you don't see any real upside for it. I, I think, at 75 years old with a having done well in the in the fiat system that you've got a moral obligation to help the next generation but that put that one aside for a moment I, I i think that for anyone whether they're a teenager or you know with their first job or or whether they're you know in their 30s or 40s and trying to you know build a career and, and a family formation and think about their you know the future of their children and so forth to 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 be intentionally ignorant of these things is to play the part of a fool. And it's poor stewardship of your time. God has given you a limited number of days and he has called you to work. And so to choose to be ignorant and to choose to be naive and foolish is a, is a poor steward of the time on earth that God has given you. And I think the last aspect of it is we're Christians. So we believe not just that you're protecting yourself. We believe that, that loving your neighbor is the second greatest commandment. And so we think that uh, that starts in the home, that starts for husbands and fathers to shepherd their wives and to understand the, the, the state of their finances and to teach their children and their grandchildren. I was thinking about the word that David used, unintentional, and, and reminded of a great book that we all three have read called The Intentional Legacy by David McIlvaney, which speaks to a intentional pursuit of the transmission of not just the resources that we have to the next generation, but the wisdom of how to manage and save and use those resources to glorify God. And so we embrace the reality that this is an education process that we have undertaken as men to, to educate those who will listen to us around us, not to make any money, not to become famous, but because we love them and we, we're trying to help 
pull as many people into a lifeboat as we can while they have opportunity. And so when we turn that around and say, what's the obligation of the, the men, the, the woman, the Christian today, it's to steward the time that you have, the money that you have to glorify God with it today and to teach the next generation to do the same. Where should a Christian start who wants to get educated? I'll, I'll do the, uh, the honors of plugging your guys' podcast. <laughs> it, really, it really is excellent to those of you who are listening. Um, the first season, they kind of you guys go through and explain what Bitcoin is, how it works, what are the upsides, what's so great about it. And I'm loving the second season you're in where you're just diving deep into the Bible on all these different aspects. Um, so love, love the podcast. Definitely encourage people to start there. But what are the other resources? If someone wants to get their head around it, where do you start? Well, I think it's important to note that we're not limited the way that people were 10, 12 years ago to learn about Bitcoin. There are so many good resources out there. And we recognize that depending on who you are and how old you are and how you learn, that you may profit more from reading a good book. Some may profit more from listening to a podcast and, or an audio book and having it explained to them. Some just need short articles that can be digested in short periods of time and, and done so repetitiously. So we've worked to take some of those resources that we find the most helpful and the most accessible for those who are getting started and put them on a website, bitcoinandthebible.com, where you can obviously get the links to our podcast, but you can see books, that, some of the best books that we recommend, some of the best articles that we recommend, and some of the best podcasts, not our podcast, that you can listen to. And we plan to continue to develop that as one of the centralized resources out there. But there are, there are multiple others. We, we issue a caution, uh, be wise, recognize that not all voices in the Bitcoin space are Christian-friendly. So if you go into the Bitcoin space looking for wisdom, you may find a lot of great financial wisdom uh, mixed with a lot of evolutionary mindsets, mixed with a lot of profanity, mixed with a lot of this world's wisdom. So be wise and, and sort through that with your level of comfort, especially if you're sharing it with grandparents or children. Uh, but we also do delight in the reality that one of the things that we plan to continue doing past season two is connecting our listening audience with some of the great resources that we are connected with and, and being a centralized hub of sharing that and uh, taking questions from our listening audience and, and transforming those questions into resources that will help multiple people. So I think, yeah, start at bitcoinandthebible.com. Take a look at some of the resources we've, we've put there. If you're hungry beyond that, uh, there's a site called casebitcoin.com that is a phenomenal wealth of, of resources. It links out to every possible uh, study and paper and podcast and video that you could imagine broken down by topic and interest and author and date. And it, it's great. So the, the articles, it puts the, the price of Bitcoin at the time the article was published. So it's, it's amazing to go back cool. and see some of these articles written back in 2013, 2014 that were, you know, just bang on, but way early. <laughs> I, th I think if you go to the, to the mainstream financial press, then you have to understand the profit motive behind the, the, the people that they bring on and, and their profit motive is tied into the legacy system. So, um, 
you're not going to find a lot of good sound information there. What you're going to find is, is a lot of FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And and those those FUD arguments just get recirculated. I mean, in, like every year or two, you know, they put a fresh coat of paint on them and they just rolled them back out again. And I mean, the big one, of course, was that China was, you know, going to take it over because more than 51% of the mining was in China and then China was going to ban it. And, and you know, and, and the truth of the matter is that's all happened. And, and Bitcoin is, is still here. And in fact, the, the price dip that happened when all the mining was shut down in China has more than recovered. The hash rate is back to where it was and continuing to grow. And uh, so maybe China FUD has finally been put to rest, but, <laughs> no. but probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th I think you need to become convictional here. Because if you're not convictional, if you see Bitcoin as a trade, a, a way to make a few bucks or whatever, you know, like a stock or something, um, you're going to get you're going to get scared out of it because it is highly volatile. We're we're undergoing worldwide adoption, and so it is it is very volatile. The supply the available supply is very small, and so um, you can see some pretty jagged price movements. And, but without conviction, right? Without the ability to to hodl Bitcoin. You're, you're going to get scared out of it, and, and likely you're going to sell it back into a depreciating, a melting ice cube, to use Michael Saylor's terminology, right, into a, into a back into a USD currency that's, that's depreciating 20 or 25 percent a year, and the whole endeavor is, is going to be futile, and you're going to really miss um, a generational transformation that's, that's going on. So... Um, what you know position size how much do i get in for well don't get in for more than than you can um convictionally stand convictionally stand i mean if you can't sleep at night reduce your position size or increase it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> increase your conviction and then increase your position size yeah I mean, we didn't get a chance to to talk about it but the whole time horizon thing i think is so is so important in that discussion as well too is understanding your your time preference having a low time preference if yes. i can set aside money this you know nothing's guaranteed in life but if you can put money aside for 10 years where how in 10 years how many bitcoin are there going to be left to be mined how many are going to be held by long-term holders what's the price going to be if history is any indicator up 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 and just to kind of give perspective to your listeners who you know may or may not have a, a ton of experience with Bitcoiners, especially Bitcoin maximalists, when when we're talking about these things, I mean, I am a hundred percent of my net worth is in Bitcoin. I mean, these other guys here are in the in the same ballpark, and we're not talking about oh, you know, two percent allocation, right? I mean, if you're getting started and your your conviction is growing and that's where you're at, great. But just to to kind of give a little bit of of a background of where, where we are, we're all in, and and not from a we want to get rich quick, but from a I don't want to get poor slowly. And to go back to something you pointed to earlier, conviction comes as your understanding of the security of the U.S. dollar changes. For our entire lives, the U.S. dollar has been the most secure thing that you could imagine having, right? It's physical cash that you have that you could hold that you could do anything with and nobody's going to be able to say this is not worth anything. But now you can look at countries around the world and say, if you were in a country like Venezuela... <laughs> and the price of Bitcoin rose to a tremendous value, would you think to yourself, gosh, I need to take some of that off the table and get back into the Venezuelan currency. That's more safe than Bitcoin. 
You would never do that. You wouldn't do that in Lebanon. You wouldn't do that in any country where hyperinflation is occurring. But the more you hold Bitcoin, the more you study it, and the more you understand what is happening to the U.S. dollar, the less likely it is that you're going to look at the U.S. dollar and say, oh, yeah, that's the safe haven asset that I should get back into when things get a little risky for me. The more you realize how safe Bitcoin is and how secure and how easy it is to trust and hold it, the more likely it is that your conviction is, I need to get out of the U.S. dollar and get into Bitcoin. Yeah, when I got into Bitcoin, it took um, almost four Bitcoin to buy a new car. And, and new car prices have gone through the roof, right? Yeah. But I can buy a new car now for less than one Bitcoin. Hmm. Right? So yeah, It's interesting when you put it in terms of goods rather than to the U.S. dollar. Yeah, the U.S. dollar is a rubber ruler. It's not a reliable measure. So Home so prices are falling. Home prices are falling. Car prices are falling. Measured in it's Bitcoin. All, it's all about what your unit of account is. Yes, exactly. The S&P 500 is falling. So I, I want to be respectful of your guys' time because selfishly, I, wanna, I want you to record the next episode so I can <laughs> listen to it. <laughs> so now you're all gathered there, ready, ready to go. But uh, I just want to give you a chance. Is there, is there anything else you would add that you would just want to leave um, listeners of this podcast with who are kind of you know, Bitcoin curious or cautious or interested. I would just conclude by saying, remember your priorities, right? Bitcoin does not fix everything in this world. There's only one savior, Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, then you need to know him first and foremost. And you need to trust him with your ultimate eternity, your ultimate treasure. But once you are a believer, we believe that your worldview should be completely transformed by the knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's not a single aspect of this world that he does not control, and he cannot inform you in from Scripture. Scripture is our foremost authority. We believe that by going to Scripture, we see the mind of God. So we believe that when you go to Scripture and you see the mind of God, you come out with a conviction that allows you to look optimistically and creatively at this world and say, what has he given me today that allows me to better love him and love my neighbor? And that right now is Bitcoin. Amen. Amen. I love it. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate your time. Appreciate what you're doing. Uh, there will be links to everything that we talked about in the show notes and go check out this podcast. Go right now and subscribe to Bitcoin in the Bible and hope to talk to you guys again soon. We'd love it. Take care. Thanks, Reagan.